0: This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. I'm Henry Smith, partner for our business intelligence team in the EMEA region. I was based in the UAE for four years with control risks, where I led our Iran practice after the implementation of the nuclear deal from 2014. It's Iran that will be the subject of our discussion today. Here to discuss Iran with me is Nikki Siamaki in Dubai, who is an Iran focused analyst in control risks, political risk team. We also have London based Asfandiar Batmangalij, the founder and CEO of the Borson Bazaar Foundation, which is a think tank committed to economic diplomacy, economic development, and economic justice in the Middle East and Central Asia. Asfandiar is also a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Finally, we're joined by Farid Sigari Majd, a Vienna based partner with the leading law firm Freshfields. Farid also leads the firm's wider Iran group. Many thanks to each of you for joining me today. I think it's always helpful in discussions about Iran to set some parameters around what's happening in the country's domestic politics, because it helps us to make sense of aspects of its foreign policy too. We've recently had Ibrahim Raisi elected as Iran's president. This man was roundly beaten by former President Hassan Rouhani in 2017. Rouhani couldn't stand in the election this time, as he'd already served his two terms. So Nikki, to get things going, why did Raisi win this time? And what does this tell us about where Iranian politics is?
1: So Raisi won 62% of the vote this time, whereas in the 2017 elections, he only won around 38%. Rouhani and the reformist camp at that time were enjoying relatively high levels of popularity primarily due to Rouhani's brokering of the nuclear deal, which led to the lifting of U.S., EU, and U.N. nuclear sanctions and helped grow the economy. Raisi at the time was a more low-profile figure who served in moderately important posts, like the head of the Charitable Foundation, Osama Ghoutz but his reputation had been marred by his involvement in the 1988 executions of political prisoners, during which he was the deputy prosecutor of Tehran. Some important changes have taken place in the past three years that were crucial to Raisi, Winning the election this time around. The first is, of course, the US's withdrawal from the nuclear deal and the reimposition of US nuclear sanctions. Since Rouhani and the reformists spearheaded efforts to broker the deal, the U.S. withdrawal led to some decrease in the reformists' popularity domestically and also weakened their power politically. Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has become less trusting of the reformists to guide the country's policies. And the withdrawal from the deal, especially when Iran was fully complying with the deal, just increased Khamenei's perception that the West can't be trusted. Once the U.S. withdrew from the nuclear deal, tensions between Tehran and Washington began to rise, and this coincided with Khamenei supporting Raisi's ascent to power. Khamenei placed him in important positions, such as appointing him as the head of the judiciary in 2019 and supported Raisi's pursuit of an anti-corruption campaign, which was important to fostering a more positive image of Raisi among the population and within the government, particularly among conservatives, compared to when he ran in the elections in 2017. Come around the time of the most recent elections, voter apathy among the population was already high, particularly among reformist aligned voters due to various factors like the state of the economy, disenchantment with the reformists, the violence in the 2019 protests, and voter turnout was already expected to be very low with calls for boycotts of the election spreading on social media. Amid this backdrop, the Guardian Council made the decision to reject any prominent reformist candidate from running in the elections that could have posed a serious challenge to Raisi, which just increased voter apathy further because it increased this perception that the elections were a sham and that the government was just trying to ensure that Raisi wins. The council didn't allow any of the reformists' top 14 preferred candidates that they had said they wanted to run to run in the elections. With all of this, voter turnout was a record low of 48.8%. In terms of where Iranian politics is at, I think we're seeing a more concerted effort by the more conservative forces and institutions to marginalize the reformists and consolidate control. Rice's victory means that conservatives now dominate the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of the government. The conservatives also won the 2020 parliamentary elections by a landslide, again, partly due to the Guardian Council's rejection of many reformists and rejection of even conservatives who had supported some reformist policies. Reformists now hold 19 of 290 seats in parliament, whereas in the 2016 parliamentary elections, the reformists held 137 seats.
0: Thank you, Nikki. Asfandia, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on how you see domestic politics developing in Iran as well.
2: Thanks, Henry. I think that was a, an excellent overview by Nikki of sort of the, the machinations that led to this election outcome. What's obvious is that there was a lot of what some Iranian commentators have called engineering to ensure that Raisi would prevail. But at the same time, there was this underlying apathy that made it very difficult for more moderate forces to get voters to turn out and to actually make the effort to try and push them into power. We did have a candidate, Abdul Nasser Hamati, who was the governor of Iran's central bank, who was nominally the candidate for the moderates and reformists. And you would think that in a time of economic crisis, a relatively well-respected and sort of adept central banker might be an appealing candidate for the electorate. But whatever qualities Hamati had, it wasn't enough to mobilize voters, and that really goes to show that the political machine that the more conservative factions within Iran's political spectrum have are formidable when compared to those of the reformist camp. Now, I think the big question we have looking at the outcome of the election is we know that the reformists were soundly defeated. But the question is whether or not there is still room for reform as a political process in Iran. And now that there has been a kind of political consolidation, which Nikki described around the different branches of government where at least sort of nominally, the individuals in charge of those branches are more ideologically aligned, come from similar institutional backgrounds, have probably similar goals with regards to the governance of the country. The question is whether they might be a little bit more open to some of the reforms that their political rivals in the Rouhani administration had tried to push over the last eight years. So those would include reforms to things like Iran's banking sector, and here we can point to the very controversial Financial Action Task Force Action Plan, which was a set of legislation that was blocked by hardliners that was intended to make Iran's financial system stronger and come more in line with international standards. But it also includes reforms that have been really sought after by the Iranian public, for example, over freer access to online platforms and communications technologies, which are currently blocked in many cases in Iran. So I think that's the main thing that I'm interested to look at moving forward, and I think we'll have a big bearing on where the country is headed. Does the political consolidation that we've seen make it possible for some of these reforms to go through because they're no longer a political football that is going to be kicked around as part of the rivalry between the reformists and the more conservative factions, or? Is it the case that the political consolidation that has happened is really an ideological consolidation and you actually have less space for reform? I think it's still an open question, but one that will have a big bearing on the trajectory of the country.
0: Thank you, Asandiar. Given this background, Nikki, and this is a somewhat unfair question, given what Asandiar has just said... Do you think that this new presidency and this new constellation of decision makers around the president will increase the possibility of Iran and the U.S. reaching an agreement? And if so, what do you think that agreement might look like?
1: So... Iran and the U.S. just concluded their sixth round of nuclear negotiations in Vienna in June, but Iran has made it clear that it does not want to resume negotiations until Raisi has assumed office, which will take place on August 5th. So the negotiations are now expected to resume in mid-August. In recent years, up until the presidential debate, Rice had been quite muted in what he thought about the nuclear deal, though he had been critical of the deal during the 2017 presidential elections. He'd criticized, quote-unquote, Rouhani's weak efforts during the former negotiations, though even then, he still said that it was a national document that must be respected. He has now made it clear that he wants to uphold the, the agreement, having explicitly said so during the most recent presidential debates, and After he was elected, it's quite likely that Raisi, in affirming his commitment to the deal, had been given orders from up top to do so from Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, who has the final say on all major foreign policy decisions and the Supreme National Security Council, which is the body that forms Iran's nuclear strategy and that Raisi is actually a member of. I think the SNSC will be important in ensuring continuity in Iran's nuclear policies. Some of its members will change with Raisi assuming office. For example, four of his ministers will replace Rouhanis, who currently sit on the council. But many of the council's members will remain in power and will continue supporting efforts to reach a deal with the U.S. and have sanctions lifted. That being said, I do think that a Raisi presidency, at least compared to a reformist president, does increase the risks of the talks breaking down. Raisi has said that he wants to form a quote-unquote revolutionary cabinet, interpreted to mean that his cabinet will be made up of hardliners, and that means that he's likely to choose a conservative foreign minister. Depending on who he chooses, the situation could be reminiscent of nuclear negotiations under former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, in which Said Jalili, a conservative figure, was the lead nuclear negotiator. Jelili's hardline and uncompromising attitude towards the negotiations with the U.S. at the time actually led to a breakdown in the nuclear talks and led to the imposition of U.S., EU and UN nuclear sanctions. I think that what a conservative foreign minister and negotiating team could do is prolong or lengthen the process of reaching an agreement with the U.S. concerning a return to mutual compliance with the deal. But I also think that Khamenei has made it clear that he wants the lifting of sanctions, which will require a deal with Washington. So Khamenei may try to do what he reasonably can to facilitate this. For example, he could ensure that there is some continuity in the team and that figures like Deputy Foreign Minister Abbas Arafci remain directly involved in the ongoing talks in Vienna. But this might be an optimistic assessment and we'll just have to wait and see. In response to the second part of your question on what any sort of agreement will look like, we'll likely see that in exchange for every major move by the US to ease or lift sanctions or facilitate Iran's access to its frozen funds abroad, Iran will undertake a specific nuclear step that will be verified by the IAEA before the US takes the next step and vice versa, kind of like what happened with the implementation of the JPOA in 2014. This implementation stage Will likely take three to six months. In terms of the sanctions relief Iran will achieve, I think the RIC administration will hold a maximalist position for several months. For example, it will urge that all the Trump era sanctions on Iran are lifted, like the designation of the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization, and ask for things that go beyond the remit of the nuclear deal. For example, this week, there's been reports that Iran is urging that the U.S. accept clause that any future withdrawal from the deal need to be approved by the U.N., which the U.S. is highly unlikely to accept. But I think Iran will do this to maximize the extent of sanctions relief that it believes it can achieve. And ultimately, there will be some compromise on the Iranian side on the extent of sanctions relief. So Iran likely won't see all the sanctions imposed by Trump lifted, especially the sanctions linked to terrorism, human rights, and its ballistic missile program. But I do think most of them will have to be lifted and will be lifted. So I think we'll see a return to mutual compliance with the nuclear deal, meaning that Iran will return to its commitments and that U.S. nuclear sanctions and most Trump-era sanctions on Iran will be lifted.
0: Thank you, Nikki. Vandiyah, you've watched Iran's relationship with the world as closely as anyone I know over the past decade. Please could you give us your take on where you see these negotiations going and what you consider to be a realistic outcome?
2: Nikki did a great job of explaining that there's a strategic logic around these negotiations that should continue to hold for Iran's leadership and for the new president. So as she described, Iran's supreme leader has supported the nuclear deal for a very long time in very adverse conditions. If we consider that Trump pulled out of the deal in 2018 with the reapposition of U.S. secondary sanctions, the fact that Iran has gone through a very painful process of remaining in the agreement agreement albeit lowering its level of compliance with the terms of the agreement for the subsequent nearly 3 years and also experiencing a significant economic downturn because of the sanctions that were reimposed the fact that they're still in the deal and still trying to negotiate the restoration of the deal and the re-entry of the US is you know really strong evidence that there is a strong commitment to the logic of the agreement and the idea that it is in Iran's strategic interest not to have this sort of global crisis around its possible proliferation capabilities and also a domestic crisis around the economic impact of the sanctions. So we should see, I'm hopeful, that the deal gets resolved, but the risks are still there that different issues or political misunderstandings derail the process. I think ultimately what this comes down to with regards to Iran's place in the international community is that, you know, we had very high expectations. I think those of us outside of Iran had high expectations that the nuclear deal was going to create a foundation on which to sort of repair Iran's place in the world, to give Iran a greater and more constructive role in the region, to restore Iran a place in the global economy that it had been largely excluded from. And unfortunately, given the way that the domestic political tides have gone and given the experience of mistrust between Iran and particularly the US, but also to an extent with Europe, resulting from the US withdrawal from the nuclear deal and the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign. I think we have to lower our expectations about what this deal can achieve it is unlikely to take us to a place where Iran begins to re-enter sort of the international community with the full rights and privileges that it might expect for itself. And the reason for this really comes down to the fact that the way that the relationship between the U.S. and Iran has played out over the last four decades has really embedded a lot of mistrust and a lot of mutual risk perception that's very difficult to kind of get over. If you talk to Iranian and U.S. policymakers, they will acknowledge the strategic value of something like the nuclear deal. But for myself and I think other analysts, one of the things that we've come to sort of grapple with is the fact that behind the notion that people can kind of very rationally say, yes, this deal is a win-win and it's in the interest of both parties, there's always this tide of mutual apprehension where the two sides believe that even if on paper the deal looks like a good deal and is in their mutual interest, There is some larger game that is being played where there's always a sense that one side is losing out. And I think that is largely the kind of concern that has colored most recently the Raisi administration's slow rolling of the negotiations. The current president, Hassan Rouhani, has become very vocal about complaining that the opportunity was taken away from him. Uh, and his administration to restore this deal and to grant Iran the sanctions relief. He has claimed that the deal could have been restored six months ago, and that Iran's leadership has sacrificed six months of economic recovery as a result, simply because of this sense that there is some better deal that could be won. And I think, ultimately, these are the perceptions that may short-circuit diplomacy moving forward. So even if an optimistic scenario we get the nuclear deal restored, the overall environment, the overall level of mistrust is so high that it is not clear that we will be able to build on this agreement, for example, achieve the more for more deal that the Biden administration had targeted, where Iran would enter into a wider set of negotiations over things like its regional activities and its missile program in order to potentially benefit from a wider range of economic uh, sort of carrots, in this case relief from US primary sanctions and possibly larger investment commitments. So I think to answer your question and to summarize, I think the point is that we have had a a difficult education over the last few years where I think the high expectations we have that something like the nuclear deal could fundamentally change the course of Iran's relations, particularly with the West, is probably untenable at this point. And all we can hope for is to achieve some kind of foundation for at least constructive relations where you aren't always on the brink of a conflict, and then hopefully in the long term start to deal with that underlying mistrust, those underlying apprehensions, and if we can do that, then maybe the strategic logic might prevail and Iran can try and carve for itself a better position in the international community.
0: Thank you, Asandia. And Farid, thank you for joining us from Vienna, too, and thank you for your patience as we brought you into the discussion. Vienna has played a really an important role in these negotiations many years ago and also today, so it feels very appropriate to have you representing the city, as it were. I wanted to ask you if you agreed with the prognosis that Nicky and Vandiar have provided, or if you see things a little differently.
3: Thank you, Henry. Well. Yes, I absolutely share their view and outlook on the potential new nuclear deal. Um, And I also agree that things will probably still take a while until we do have any results. As Nikki and Esfandiar already said, there were several rounds, I think six rounds of negotiations in Vienna. Um, and while parties reported significant progress, the whole negotiations were done by the former administration. And we already heard around the new administration's focus and the likelihood of uh, a nuclear deal taking place this year will be probably shifting into next year or, or even longer. And I think there are several areas of disagreement where I do not see that we can quickly come to a solution. And besides, we're talking about the U.S. U.S. and Iran, and we still have the U.K., Russia, China, and EU also with their own type of interest, which doesn't necessarily have to be the same with the U.S. And all of this just adds to the uncertainty whether a, a new deal can be struck. If we take China and listen what to the U.S. officials have been saying most recently is that they are looking into Iran's growing oil sales to China, which they had looked away uh, in the past. And they're openly threatening with posing new sanctions on uh, these China oil sales um, involving also the China company Chinese companies. Um, if the new Iranian administration does not adopt uh, sufficient pace and commitment in negotiating uh, the new nuclear deal, well, this definitely will not cheer up the people involved and adds to the challenges. And we've seen the weakness of the other parties, and at the end of the day, it really boils down to what the U.S. does because even though the EU had been very keen to keep the JCPOA alive with still having the EU sanctions lifted and supporting JCPOA, also after the U.S. withdrawal, they were not able to give their own European companies the comfort they need to uphold their businesses with Iran, which led to a lot of frustration. And even after setting up this special purpose vehicle to facilitate trade, INSTEX, that didn't really turn out to be a success story. There was a transaction in 2022 and a few smaller ones afterwards. But this did not substantially help business to maintain working with Iran uh, because of the U.S. sanctions. So we need really the U.S. and the Iranians to to figure this out. And EU UK, China, and Russia, uh, will they have their own interests? And I don't think this, this can be agreed in medium term. And I agree with Esfantia, even if we do have an agreement, it will still take quite a while for business
0: to pick up significantly. Thank you, Farid. I remember quite vividly the process that some of the clients we were working with went through to get comfortable with sanctions when the original nuclear deal was implemented. It would be really helpful to hear some of your thoughts on some of the legal challenges that European companies faced at the time and whether you think these challenges will be salient if indeed the nuclear deal is reinstated in a version similar to how we knew it before.
3: Yes Henry the absolutely exciting times back in 2015 16 huge amount of interest and appetite by all types of investors we even had US investors looking into the Iranian market but this interest was heavily challenged by the reality in Iran. And there were a few reasons, and I would just pick out a few to discuss. One of them was that despite the sanctions being lifted or eased, there remained many gray areas for investors. The Iranian sanctions increasingly became fast-moving over the last 10 years, and in particular with the Trump administration, but also under President Obama. Almost at the same time, the implementation date of the JCPOA occurred in January 2016, the US listed further Iranian persons. So these regular changes to sanctions regimes, you know, with new sectors and persons being added, blocking rules created, it just added to the uncertainty for European companies. And this whole sanctions world will stay a grayish area, and that cannot be easily removed. So. Together with a no U.S. involvement rule basically saying that no U.S. persons, U.S. dollars or U.S. export controlled goods to be involved led to huge legal and economic uncertainty and resulted in a loss of risk and appetite. And I'm sure this will remain the same even after a new deal has taken place. Another important problem was that while Iranian companies Warmly welcomed international investors, especially from Europe, Japan, South Korea. The lack of international business experience made it really hard to cope with the expectations of professional investors. So, Iranian companies lacked simple compliance systems that European companies would expect uh, their partners to have. There was a lack of sensitivity for adequate sanctions protections in the sales agreements or cooperation agreements. Certain basics of international contract negotiations were things that the Iranians had problem with Western-type mentality because they just hadn't been negotiating with these people for quite a few years. And one of the most important things was the lack of financing. So the investors, on the other hand, found themselves in the position that banks were even more cautious to work with Iran than at the time the JCPA was not in force, and this will not change. So most of the major Western banks and and also you know the regional banks that had previously processed Iran transfers were not and are not willing to support any Iranian business for financing or fund processing. That's not only because of sanctions and also are touched upon this. The main reason is that. Iran, besides North Korea, is the only country that is blacklisted by the Financial Action Task Force on money laundering, the FATF. This means that as a high jurisdiction, FATF has identified significant strategic deficiencies in Iranian laws to counter money laundering, terrorist financing, and financing of proliferation. and. Although Iran has adopted new regulations since 2016 to fulfill this, the, the action plan of FATF, in February 2020, FATF noted that there are still items that are not completed and Iran should fully address these, in particular, Iran's failure to enact the Palermo and terrorist financing conventions in line with the FATF standards. The relevant two bills were passed by the parliament and approved by the constitutional vetting body, the Guardian Council, in 2018 and 19. However, the parliament and the council were in disagreement over the two remaining bills. And that's why these were handed over to the arbitration body, the expediency council, where they remain dormant until today. And since 2020, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, the FATF has paused the review process for Iran. But the recommendation and call for action are still alive. So this whole blacklisting of Iran requires enhanced due diligence and relevant reporting mechanism. Or systematic reporting of financial transactions for the banks, for the parties, in, for the companies involved, and makes it much more burdensome for international banks to work with Iranian counterparts or on Iran-related matter. So they just simply say no when they hear Iran, irrespective of the fact that the underlying business and the parties involved are absolutely free from sanctions perspective to do that particular business or deal and and the other solutions around exchange houses or channeling payments through other jurisdictions that are more favorable to Iran doing barter businesses etc that has not really turned out to be a viable solution for larger businesses so it's it's not only about getting rid of the sanctions, Iran has to seriously focus on getting away uh, from the FATF listing to make it easier for the banks and businesses
0: to do business with Iran. Thank you, Farid. Your comments there point to quite a range of complexities that organizations looking at Iran will need to consider as a start or indeed restart business with the country. I wanted to turn to Asvandiar again now just to see if you have any additional thoughts on what might be some of the impediments or challenges that organizations will need to overcome if they do start to look at Iran again.
2: Before I answer your question, Henry, I thought maybe for the, for the sake of optimism, I'll share a few things that I think have actually improved uh, in sort of the last decade because of the sanctions experience and that I think will help create the, the mechanisms and the incentives around which Iranian government officials and business leaders will need to work together to solve the problems that Farid very uh, eloquently sort of laid out. But basically, the positive news is that Iran's economy hasn't been totally stagnant in the last decade. So even if we can look at things like macroeconomic data and we look at growth figures and we say, okay, this economy that you know had been growing at a very healthy clip was one of the rising economies in the world has been sort of flatlined for the last decade. And even though we might be concerned about that, there are still under the surface areas where there has been progress in development. And I think I would point to sort of three things here. The first is that Iran's private sector, has continued to develop in that decade. And part of this is because the sort of economy has been naturally moving towards a kind of liberalization partially led by top-down policy. Iranian government officials have sort of embraced the idea of a smaller government, at least on paper, And also because of bottom-up forces, private sector companies have found ways in which they could bring technology into the country, start to sort of develop new manufacturing or services businesses that didn't exist in Iran before and have therefore gained a lot of market share in what is a very large economy. And so if you look at the private sector today, we did an event earlier this year, and one of the leading key private sector businesspersons said that, in his view, Iran's private sector is now almost too big to fail, which is a statement that if you look back, let's say 20 years and look at the composition of the Iranian economy, you would not have been able to make because the private sector was really very small and focused on largely trading businesses. And so I think this is a very positive development because one thing that we have seen is that private sector companies generally have higher degrees of resilience in the face of economic shocks. And many of them have actually done fairly well despite sanctions pressure. And they're also generally more responsive and faster learners with regards to things like the challenges that Farid described about how companies need to learn to negotiate with European or other foreign counterparties in order to create the basis of long-term partnerships. So the private sector is a bright spot. The other thing I'd say is that we've seen a significant development in Iran's non-oil economy. And again, part of this was because of the sanctions pressure. Iranian policymakers who were able to sort of lazily count on oil exports as Uh, really betting the economic prosperity of the country, suddenly realized that oil exports are very vulnerable to constraints such as international sanctions imposed by the US and others. And so the relative importance of non-oil exports to Iran's economy has increased. And as part of the sort of overall economic shift that took place, which included a devaluation of Iran's currency that was in many ways very painful for ordinary Iranians because it contributed in part to high inflation, it also made Iranian manufactured goods more competitive in international markets. They became cheaper for foreign buyers. And so many companies were able to take advantage of this situation and non-oil exports have increased. And then finally, I'd say although there has been generally a period of economic stagnation, one thing we have seen is a sort of groundswell of innovation and technology adoption in Iran, similar to what we see in other developing countries around the world. So you have much higher levels of smartphone penetration, a much more advanced uh, general sort of telecommunications infrastructure, and you have the digitalization of a lot of economic activities both for consumers and enterprise clients. And so those kinds of secular trends, which we have seen as being really fundamental to economic development in other countries, are actually taking place in Iran despite general malaise and the general negative outlook for the economy. So if you take these three things together, and you sort of weigh them against the picture that Farid painted for us. On one hand, it's simply not enough to sort of wrest the country out of its economic crisis and to drive economic development forward on its own. But on the other hand, it's basically the fertile ground where if certain things can move in the right direction and certain impediments are lifted, you can see where Iran can start to regain its development trajectory and find that growth that ordinary Iranians so sorely need so that their economic welfare starts to improve again. And so for foreign companies looking at the Iranian market, I think they need to look at that full picture. Yes, the overall economic environment is going to remain very challenging, The mechanics of doing business in Iran are very challenging, but particularly if you're looking at the private sector, if you're looking at the non-oil economy and if you're looking at businesses that are taking advantage of scaling because of the adoption of digital technology or the introduction of new technologies that deliver efficiency in manufacturing processes or service provision. There are ways to build very financially successful businesses in Iran. And there are very stable private sector partners in Iran that are sort of well positioned to be the joint venture partner or the buyer of a technology or any kind of counterparty for a foreign investor. So I think in the medium to long term, we can be optimistic about Iran's economy if some of these impediments are dealt with, because it's not the case that this is an economy where all progress ended because of the sanctions. In some ways, actually, Iranians were able to use their ingenuity, their resilience, and find areas of the economy where things were able to continue to be pushed forward despite the overall challenges.
0: Thank you, Asandia. I think that's a really helpful antidote to some of the pessimism and concern that people will have about Iran's economy and potential. So thank you for sharing those insights. Just to round things off, I want to come back to where we started, which was with Nikki. Nikki, it'd be great just to get some final thoughts from you around whether you've seen any other changes in Iran's political and economic landscape over the past few years that you think our clients should be keeping in mind.
1: Thank you, Henry. Before I answer that question, I just wanted to go back to the issue of the FATF and also kind of continue on this note of optimism that I think there are signs within the government that the legislation needed to implement the Palermo and terrorist financing conventions, which the FATF wants Iran to do. Uh, I think there's a recognition that these do need to be passed. So Khamenei in December actually asked for the revision of these bills by the Expediency Discernment Council. Which solve disagreements between parliament and the guardian council who had rejected these bills. So I think in the coming years, we could see Iran, you know, make progress towards being removed from the FATF's blacklist. And something else I wanted to know is that Iran has actually been on the blacklist since 2008. But what happened in 2016 after the implementation of the nuclear deal is that the FATF suspended the countermeasures against Iran. So the countermeasures are a series of recommended measures. That countries must take when dealing with Iran, like requiring financial institutions to systematically report financial transactions and prohibiting financial institutions from opening subsidiaries there. It's unclear whether the FATF will suspend the countermeasures again if the nuclear deal is implemented, though that is a possibility that could kind of mitigate the effect of the FATF's blacklisting. I'm not as hopeful that it will suspend the countermeasures again. It seems that. the organization has been quite adamant that Iran does address the deficiencies in its terrorist financing and money laundering issues, but I do think it's a possibility. To go to your question, Henry, I think there have been some changes that foreign businesses interested in Iran should consider. One is, of course, the sanctions environment. So, Foreign businesses may face a more complicated sanctions environment following any agreement with the U.S. because Washington is unlikely to lift all the sanctions that were imposed during the Trump administration. And some of these sanctions could include sanctions that were imposed on entities that have significant interests in the Iranian economy. So, for example, sanctions on charitable foundations, Musa Zafan Foundation, and Ostanakod Zarazavi could remain in place. So this means that the due diligence that was conducted by foreign companies between 2016 and 2018 would be outdated and would need to be reassessed to ensure potential business partners remain uncontrolled and unlinked to sanctioned entities. Another thing is some of the regulatory changes that have taken place over the past few years, some of which have been a direct response to sanctions. For example, following the reimposition of nuclear sanctions in 2018, the Ministry of Industry, Mining and Trade banned the import of over 1,300 products that could be produced domestically to shield Iran's economy from U.S. sanctions. To date, the government has imposed an import ban on over 1,500 products, and limited the import of over 700 products on products ranging from pharmaceuticals, textile products, furniture, and machinery. So these import bans and limitations aren't likely to be lifted once U.S. sanctions are because Iran's economy has actually benefited from their imposition. The Ministry of Industry, Mining and Trade in March this year said that import bans had saved Iran 5.8 billion U.S. dollars between March 2020 and February of this year because of the outflow of foreign currency for imported goods that would have occurred without the import bans. So some of the regulatory changes that have benefited Iran and domestic industries are likely to stay in force even if U.S. nuclear sanctions are lifted. Another consideration would be the changes in the past few years concerning the reputational risks of conducting business in Iran. Raisi and his cabinet will likely change how Iran is perceived internationally compared to Rouhani and key members of Rouhani's cabinet, like Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, who were in favor of improving relations with the West. Raisi himself is subject to U.S. sanctions. He's generally more hostile towards the West compared to Rouhani, and his human rights record has been questioned. After he won the elections, the UN investigator on human rights called for an independent inquiry into his involvement in the 1988 executions of political prisoners. So Raisi and his next cabinet members, particularly his foreign minister, probably won't be as effective as the current administration in casting Iran in a positive light internationally, and as Esfandiar mentioned, Biden will likely want broader negotiations on other issues like Iran's ballistic missile program but these kind of negotiations are unlikely to happen under Raisi, and he's actually already explicitly rejected these kind of talks. So an improvement in the perception of Iran among the West is unlikely. But all things considered, I don't think that there are any radical shifts in terms of the business environment. And I think many of these risks are those that foreign companies still had to consider between 2016 and 18. I think that the government will maintain a largely pro investment stance, particularly if this comes from any neighboring states, though we will continue to see efforts by the government to strengthen Iran's resistance economy by, for example, boosting domestic production.
0: Thank you, Nikki, for that very helpful answer. And thank you to Asfandi in London, Fareed in Vienna, and indeed Nikki in Dubai, and to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope you agree that that was a helpful and wide ranging discussion from our three panelists. I think, in essence, what we've heard is plenty of optimism about the nuclear deal being reached, more optimism about domestic policy changes in Iran that could help with practical issues like the availability of banking channels but also recognition of some of the challenges that organizations looking at Iran will indeed face. But these challenges, I think, have been carefully balanced against optimism that our panelists have about Iran's potential as a market and indeed the progress that the country has made, particularly its private sector, given some of the significant challenges that the country has faced in recent years. At Control Risk, will be following Iran's progress closely in the coming months and indeed beyond, so please do keep in touch with us with your questions and thoughts about the country. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.